You're going to find this morning that you're more like in a, in a class, maybe a Bible college class. Uh, yet at the same time, I will also be preaching. But I have a lot of material that I'm going to cover. It's very important material that the Lord's led to my heart to share with you. And I've entitled the message, Gaining a Biblical Understanding of Your Salvation. Now, uh, as a shepherd or an under-shepherd, uh, the Lord brings things to my mind and my heart from uh, you, and you ask certain questions and have some concerns, and then I think, okay, Lord, evidently you want me to uh, preach on this, to bring some information on that or teach on it. And so we're going to be talking this morning about gaining a biblical understanding of your salvation. Uh, we have a lot of scripture we're going to be covering, and uh, some of it you'll want to write down, others it will be there, and you can uh, fill in what's the blanks that are there for that. I'm hoping that there will be three responses from you from this morning's message. The first response is that maybe you're here this morning and you are not saved. And uh, I'm glad you're here if that's the case, to hear this message. You might be here and you're not saved. Maybe you think you're saved and you'll hear this message and say, you know what, I don't really think I am saved. And I hope that uh, it will cause you to say, I'm going to get saved. Now I better understand the gospel and what I'm to do, and I want to get saved. So I'm hoping that that will have that response. Secondly, if you are saved, but you have doubts about your salvation, that's common. I want you to be aware of that. That's very common that a person gets saved and then they'll have doubts about their salvation. And I'm hoping that you might be able to put those doubts to rest and do so in a biblical way to know I really am saved and thank you, Lord, for saving me. I know for a number of you, you are saved and you are resting your salvation and you are growing in your walk with the Lord. And if that's the case, then it gives you a greater reason to worship Him and to praise Him this morning. So those are the three responses that I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will uh, work and affect in your and my life as we talk about gaining a biblical understanding of your salvation. And we're going to begin this morning with why this question... And why is it so important? Why this question? And why is it so important? By the way, this is not an unlimited resource of the material and answer to it. There's going to be a a whole lot more than what I'm... but, But I think this is foundational. It's basic. First, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. We're going to start there. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13.5. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or, do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Got that? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. Then there's Peter's exhortation next. Second Peter 1.10. Peter writes to that group of believers, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain. That's pretty emphatic. To make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, later on, after men's roundup, that's the second week, uh, weekend of uh, September, Hans and I are going to be taking you through the book of Second Peter, and, and so we're going to really explore a lot more of this at that point, but, but you're getting kind of a tip of the iceberg here this morning. But then also, dear ones, there's Jesus' warning, and it's sober. Jesus' warning in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, this is Jesus, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I mean, they were handling the scriptures. And in your name we even cast out demons, and in your name we perform many miracles. Wow! Surely that's evidence that they belong to the Lord and were saved. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's sobering. Gives you a reason why this is such an important question. And then I have two more. A rampant theology, a rampant theology being taught and embraced for centuries. Theologians 
who then started seminaries and Bible colleges, and then the people came out of them, and they started churches and pastored churches and so forth. They have taught that a genuinely saved person can potentially, can potentially lose his or her salvation. This theology took on the name of one of its theologians who embraced and promoted this teaching. That's James or Jacob, Arminius, and therefore it's called Arminian theology, and a lot of churches teach that. I don't know if you're aware of that. I mean, they're good churches. In a lot of play, a lot of the parts of the scripture they're right on, but they will teach, yeah, you you can be genuinely saved, but there is that possibility that you also can lose your salvation. Well, no wonder then that Christians who get saved get a little bit of doubt going on there. But I'm going to give a fifth reason. A fifth reason: a prayer prayed may not save. A prayer prayed may not save. Many a person has prayed the prayer, asking Jesus Christ to come into his or her life and save them, but they never got saved. That's a frightening thought. We'll develop that a little later on. But an example of this may be little children. It might be a Sunday school class of little kids. Uh, By the way, it's not just limited to little children, but I'm using that as an example. It might be a daily vacation Bible school where the teacher has a class of little ones. Maybe they're four, five, six years of age. Or it may be a a school backyard Bible club, and uh, the teacher says, you know, the Bible teaches that if you are not saved, you're going to go to hell. Does any of you little ones want to go to hell? It's a terrible place. No, no, I don't want to go there. Well, then you need to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart and life. And so that teacher might say, does anybody here want to do that? And a little hand pops up, and guess what happens? Twenty-five other hands pop up as well. And then they are led in the prayer, and everybody's so excited that all 25 of those little ones got saved. Listen, some of them might very well have gotten saved, but you track them 10 or 15 years later on, and pretty soon they're saying, you know, I don't even believe that God exists. I don't even believe that God created this universe. I believe there are several ways to heaven. I believe it really doesn't matter as long as you try hard, you're going to get to heaven. And you have to stay, stop and wait a minute. I don't know what you prayed back there, but you did not get salvation. We'll look at that a little bit later on. So those are five reasons. There are probably more that could be added to that. Why this question is and why it is so important. Well, that brings us to our next movement. What must take place? I said you feel like you're in a class here, basics here. What must take place before a person gets saved? Something has to take place. What takes place? If I pray a prayer and I don't get saved, then what takes place? Number one, the law of God must do its work in your life. And I'm going to go on record saying often this never happens. The law of God, God's law, must do its work in your life before anybody, anybody ever gets saved. You know the law of God, those Ten Commandments. By the way, Jesus had a whole lot more than that, didn't he? You look at the New Testament, those commands there. What does it do? It convicts us of our sin and of the judgment a holy and righteous God must execute upon those who are condemned and guilty. It does that. Until this happens, a person is merely adding Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers to his or her life. There is no genuine repentance and the turning from their sin and turning completely to God for salvation. If the law of God does not do its work in your life, there's no reason to get saved. Why? You don't need it. And a lot of people do that. They're, well, who wants to go to hell? Anybody here? Any takers? <laughs> you know? No. Anybody want to go to heaven? Well, yeah, just not the next trip. You know, I want to go just not right away. But so, so sure, what do I have to do? Oh, ask Jesus, pray a prayer, ask him to come in my heart. Okay, I'm going to do that. And then they go right on and they just live the way they've always lived. No change at all. Let's look at some scripture here and you want to write these down. They're not in your outline. John 16, 7, 8. By the way, there's a lot more than what I'm going to share. But John 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus was telling his disciples before he went to the cross, he said this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away... The Helper, who's that? The Holy Spirit. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now get this next part. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Oh, maybe it's not so important that He comes. 
All I have to do is ask Jesus to come in my heart. No, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of what? Sin. What's the next one? Righteousness and judgment. This world is exceedingly sinful. It is absolutely unrighteous. And thirdly, there's a judgment that awaits it. Romans three nineteen and 20. Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. This is the law of God. Why does it do so? So that every single mouth may be closed, stopped, and all the world may become accountable or guilty, under judgment is the word, to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight. What's he saying? You can't keep the law and get justification from God. You've already broken the law. You're under the law. It pronounces you guilty, for apart from the law, sin is dead. That's right. If the Holy Spirit doesn't bring the law of God God to bear in your my heart, then there's no repentance because you don't care about your sin. You don't care. Galatians 3.24. No, Romans 7, 7 and 8. I'm sorry. Romans 7, 7 and 8. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. No, there's nothing wrong with the law. On the contrary, I would not have known, come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. What's he mean? You're walking along and this beautiful, beautiful grass is on the side of the sidewalk and it says, do not walk on the grass. What do you want to do? Something about it just attracts you. Amazing how sinful we are. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. It just simply means sin doesn't bother you. It doesn't have any effect in you. You don't feel guilty about sinning unless the law first has an impact in your life. That takes us to Galatians 3.24. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor. That's our school teacher, our schoolmaster. The law has become our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So, dear ones, the very first thing that has to take place before anybody ever gets saved, genuinely saved, the law of God must do its work in your life. May I say this then? When you are out there witnessing to people, you need to bring the law into play, right? You need It isn't just, oh, pray a prayer because you want a better life. Pray a prayer because you don't want to go to hell. Pray a prayer because you want to go to heaven. You need to make them understand why. They need Jesus Christ. And the law of God, the Holy Spirit comes to convict them of sin, of righteousness, which they do not have, and of judgment. <clears throat> well, there's a second part. What, uh, what must take place before a person gets saved? Well, the law of God must do its work in your life. But number two, the gospel of Jesus Christ must get to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ must get to you. May I suggest it has to get to you in two different ways? Number one, you've got to hear it or somehow know about it. It's got to get to you that way. You hear it, you read it, whatever somebody tells you about it. But it's also got to get to your heart. So two different ways there. The gospel of Jesus Christ must get to you. This must be true in those two different ways. Let me use some scripture. And this one we're going to use a number of times, so don't get bored by it. It's a powerful, wonderful verse or verses. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's that? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You will be saved. And then he goes on to explain it. For with the heart, that's your mind, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with your mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ must get to you. The next verse I want to share is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. You might ask, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 explains what the gospel is that has to get to you, both by you comprehending it and then having an effect in your heart. Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So here it is. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. No, say preach, so that's how it got to them. He preached it. He came with the gospel. And you received it, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there comes a problem. Oh, doesn't that show then that Paul's saying you can be saved, genuinely saved, and lose your salvation? No. He's just saying if you're genuinely saved, what? You're going to believe and hang on to this. Otherwise, you just heard some facts that for a while you thought were great. 
How does Jesus put it? The seed, the gospel fell on the hard road surface. Nothing happened there. And then it fell on rocky places. What happened? Oh, there it sprung up. And then it was, it died because it didn't have any root. And then it fell among the thorns and the cares and deceitful riches and so forth of this world, choked it out. All three of those are examples of people that heard the gospel, to some extent embraced it, and then said, nah, this isn't for me. Only the one that brought the 30, 60, and 100 fold really received it and was genuinely saved. And so that's what it means. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I del- here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the law of God must do its work in your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ must get to you. And number three, you must believe the gospel and receive Jesus Christ. Somewhere it's got to be more than head knowledge. You've got to believe the gospel and receive Jesus Christ. Here's the scripture. I'm going to share four passages with you. John 1.12. John 1.12. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God even to those who believe in his name. There's a receiving and a believing. What is it? That's trust. You're saying, I need this, I believe it, I'm accepting it. With all my heart, I'm accepting it. Placing your faith in him. Acts 16, 30 and 31. You know the story again. This is the Philippian jailer. And uh, he cries out to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Question. Do you think this guy is ready to get saved? Do you think he's ready to get saved? If so, why do you think he's ready to get saved? It says that, Day after day, Paul and Silas went through Philippi preaching the gospel. In fact, you remember there was that slave girl that had that spirit in her that said, these are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way of salvation. I think that's most interesting because Paul was so troubled and annoyed, he cast that demon out. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, she was helping them out. No, Satan always wants to join a movement, doesn't he? Always wants to join the church, always wants to have a part in it, and you know why. He'll pollute it. But anyway... They had day after day been proclaiming the gospel. And then you recall these people brought these, they lost their ability to make a profit because the slave girl no longer had this power to do what she was doing. And uh, they brought them before the magistrates. They ripped their, their, their clothing off them and they beat them. And then they put them in prison. Now I'll tell you what. After that, here's this Philippian jailer who said, you are responsible for these prisoners. And they're in there at midnight singing and praising God. And then he says, sirs, what must I be to do to be saved after that earthquake took place that shook the place? And he was scared to death. He was going to take his own life because that was a requirement if a Roman soldier lost his prisoners. And Paul says, wait a minute, hold, hold it. He took charge, did he? Don't do that. And when he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And then so the next verse it says, and then they spoke to him. It says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. No, this man did hear the plan of salvation, that he was a poor lost sinner, and why he needed to be saved, and why it was only Jesus Christ who could save him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. So you must believe the gospel, receive it, receive Jesus Christ. Back to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and very interesting verse. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Okay? What's that saying? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, what is that saying? Are you not saying Jesus is God? That's what you're saying. Jesus is God. He is God who came out of heaven, who became my Savior, who wants to become my Savior. Then you are surrendering your life to who? To God. That's what it means by lordship. If you want to talk about lordship salvation, why would you, I mean, if you do that, then you're going to seek to walk with him and obey him because he is your Lord and your God. He says, though, there, he says, if you confess with now Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise from God. But then he explains it. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. What's that mean? I think that's when the Holy Spirit moves and brings the very life of Christ into you and imparts His righteousness to you, and immediately life is born. And what happens as a result of that? You confess with your mouth. You know what it reminds me of? Thomas. I won't believe unless he shows up and I get to thrust my fingers into those wounds. And so Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, put forth your hand. And what did he say? He never did, I think, reach out and touch him. He said what? My Lord and my God. It was a settled issue. My Lord and my God. And that's what happens when every person gets saved. 
genuinely saved. Another portion I want to share with you, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You might want to write that down. And this shows a process as well. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Paul writing to the Ephesian believers, he said, In him, that's Christ, you also, here it is, after listening to the message of truth, they had to get the gospel. The gospel of your salvation, having also believed. That's receiving it. Have you heard it? You believed it? You were sealed. That's salvation. That's the affirmation that you genuinely got saved. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, and God never breaks His engagement, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Well, this being the case, the next major movement here. Why does a person doubt their salvation? Why does a person doubt their salvation? May I say this up front? It's not all bad that you or I doubt our salvation. That can be a very good thing. Now, there comes a point where you need to get beyond that, but it can be a very, very good thing. First of all, somebody may doubt their salvation because they don't have the salvation. That would be a concern, wouldn't it? The ones that say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and so forth? And God says, you don't belong to me. So doubting your salvation could be a very good thing. We'll see a little bit more about that later on. But as I said, Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. They look alike. They grow up. And, and, and here's the problem. We're not fruit inspectors. We're not the ones going around saying, oh, this person's saved. This guy's over here. He's unsaved. That's not what God called us to do. But there needs to be a discernment there. Why do they doubt their salvation? They do so because, in your outline, salvation is a mystery. I've been at this for over 50 years. Been saved for over 60. I know. For a 50-year-old guy, it's hard to believe. But one thing I, I, I will say over and over again, salvation is a mystery. In um, John 3, 3-8, through this is where Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, and you couldn't find a more religious, more morally upright man than Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly. So he says, boy, get a hold of this, Nicodemus. This is absolutely emphatic. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused. He said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I need to explain that. What in the world did he mean, born of water? Some think, well, it's the water of the Word, the washing of the Word. I don't think that's what he had in mind there. Maybe it was. I don't think Nicodemus would understand that. He understood the Old Testament priestly sacrificial system and the water of washing there. But I don't even think that's what he had in mind. Because later on in John chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this now. This is why hopefully I'm doing careful exegetical work and Hans will straighten me out if I'm not. Okay, that's why he's here. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that or what we know and testify of what we have seen. I think, who does that we refer back to? I personally think it refers back to John the Baptist's ministry. He came as a forerunner and said what? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Nicodemus would have known that. In fact, John 1 talks about that. And I think that's what he means by water. You have to receive John's message. Repent and be baptized. In other words, you're accepting his message. And that leads into the next part. You have to be born of the Spirit or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's physical birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And he was amazed. Aren't we all? And then he says these words. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What do you say? It's a mystery. You can't figure this out. You take the scripture and try to evaluate clearly what it says there. But but it's always going to be a mystery. When I get to heaven, it's going to be a mystery. Lord, how come I'm here? It's all because of you. I don't comprehend this salvation, but I'm growing in it. And hopefully you are as well. There's always going to be a mystery, for example, when it comes to trying to comprehend God's sovereign choice in eternity past of you if you're redeemed, and yet there's your free will that's involved there. Who can understand that? Who of of us even, after carefully studying what the Bible teaches about how a spiritually dead person comes to saving faith and receives spiritual life, 
understands just exactly what took place. I don't. I mean, it's kind of like the sperm and the egg and they meet and there's life. I mean, what? No life and suddenly there's life? It's a mystery, a miracle. The Bible declares that for with a heart man, person believes resulting in righteousness. And what happens immediately following that? Immediately following that with the mouth, he confesses. By the way, here's, here's my poor understanding of salvation in that respect. The Holy Spirit, you hear the gospel, maybe right here this morning, you hear the gospel, you realize you're a sinner, the law has doing, is doing its work in your heart and life, you realize that you're lost, you realize that you're going to die in that condition and you're going to end up in hell. And you say, boy, the Holy Spirit has impressed that upon you and you believe that with all of your heart and you don't want to go there and you hear that Jesus Christ is the gospel, the good news, and He came and He went to the cross for you. He bore all your sin, all of it, all of it, even your future sins, and He bore all your judgment all of your punishment, and then he cried out, it is finished, it's paid in full. And God says, I'm going to verify that, and on the third day he raised him up from the dead. And now somebody comes along and says, the scripture says that if you believe that, and you receive him into heart, you're going to get saved. And guess what? The Holy Spirit infuses you with the life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and suddenly you want to walk an aisle and pray a prayer. Suddenly the tears may flow. Suddenly you hate your sin and you're repenting. You want to, you say, Lord, I don't, I, I want to live for you. Why did all that happen? It's because you received life and therefore with the mouth you confess, resulting in your salvation. But who understands it? It's always going to be a mystery. But why does the person doubt their salvation? Well, salvation is a mystery. But secondly, they don't understand the three tenses of salvation. This is a real big one here. Churches don't teach it. They don't teach it properly. They don't understand the three tenses of their salvation. There's a past tense, there's a present tense, and there's a future tense. The past tense the Bible calls justification. It uses other words, but justification. That's where God infuses in you the righteousness and the life of Jesus Christ. That's when you're born again. That's when you instantly become a new creation. It's uh, old things passed away, behold, all things become new. All the condemnation has forever been removed. God the Holy Spirit comes and permanently, He immediately and now permanently resides within you. And these are just some of the things. Somebody said there's 34 different things that happen at the point of justification. That's the past tense. You are saved from sin's penalty. But now we move into the present tense. The Bible calls that sanctification. What does that mean? It means God says, you are now holy. I love this. Did you know you need to start calling me, not pastor, call me Saint Bill. Okay. And by the way, it's biblical for me to call you a saint. That's what Paul called the Corinthian church. And I mean, they had so much sin in their church in midst, it was terrible. But he calls them saints. What does it mean? It means separated ones, holy ones unto God. They belong to God. And that's the present tense of your salvation. That deals with your walk, your daily walk. God has caused you to be born again. And now you are holy, set apart, belonging to him. He has, listen, he has fully provided absolutely everything for the baby in Christ to the full adult in Christ, to be victorious in the Christian walk. And that's, I think that's what uh, this uh, uh, adoption has to do with, by the way. God says, there's no reason for any of you to sin any longer, although we do it, and he knows that, because he says, I have provided ev- absolutely everything you need to go on and grow in your Christian walk. That's sanctification. Just as a newborn baby is expected to grow and the parents are committed to doing all that's necessary for that to happen, God says, I am committed to doing that in your life until I get you safely home. So sanctification deals with the being saved from the power of sin. And by the way, it is because of a justified person, that's the person who's genuinely saved, it's because of your everyday struggle with sin that you begin to doubt whether or not you're genuinely saved. And this is so true of a new Christian. In our new members class, of which we have 27 folk, a number of them told the, how they get saved. Well, they all have to tell that, but they told, a number of them told they got saved as a child. I got saved as a child. If you said, Bill, did you get saved at six or seven? I don't know. I don't know. I heard the gospel. I knew as a sinner. I, I wanted to receive Jesus Christ. I wanted to be forgiven of my sin. I wanted to go to heaven. I, I wanted a relationship with him. And I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart. And somewhere in there I got saved, folks. That's called justification. Got regenerated. I got new life. But then it wasn't long before little Billy Walker fell into sin. Big time. My mom made sure it was big time. Who of you got into the cookie jar? I sit there with a chessy cat grin on my face. And I'm guilty. 
or did other things. And boy, the guilt just weighed down on me. It weighed down. And I thought, maybe, maybe I'm not going to heaven. Maybe I'm not saved. Jesus, please come into my heart. Please save me. I probably said that 50 different times in my journey before I got it settled in scripture. So this is another reason why a Christian doubts his salvation. And by the way, the future tense of your salvation, you know what that's called. It's glorification. Glorification. That's when you're finally home with the Lord in heaven and no longer have a sin nature and you've received your glorified body. And in the future tense of your salvation, glorification, God will save you from the presence of sin. And what a glorious day that's going to be. You and I can't even comprehend what's going to be not to have any more sin and never have to deal with it ever again in your life. But in the meantime, we're having to on this journey and that's why people doubt their salvation. If you can't get it settled about the justification, then you're going to have trouble with your sanctification because there's going to be times when you're in fellowship, out of fellowship, walking with the Lord, no longer walking with the Lord, and you're up and down emotionally and so forth, and that's one reason why people doubt their salvation. They don't understand the three tenses of their salvation. Number three, why does this person doubt it's their salvation? Satan and his emissaries accuse you. I realize they piggyback here. But Satan and his emissaries accuse you. Satan and his fallen angels, the Bible calls demons, are skilled. They are ruthless. Have you learned that? They are ruthless at bringing up one's past sins. Present sins too, for that matter. They also know when you are vulnerable, by the way. They know when you are so down physically, emotionally, maybe mentally, when you're weak and feeling down and discouraged, and they move right in on you and seeking to overwhelm you with guilt. Surely you've been there. In fact, they are masters at placing genuinely saved and completely forgiven persons back under guilt. They're masters at it. And that's why people doubt their salvation. I said these piggyback, so I go to the next one, number four. Why do they doubt their salvation? Because they still sin. They still sin. Since sin still resides in our fallen human bodies, and we at times yield to those sinful desires and fall into sin, our relapse, our failure, may cause us to doubt our salvation. This is especially true, as I mentioned, of children that just get saved and then fall back into sin because they don't know the Scriptures. They're not established and ground in it. And it can be an older person that just gets saved, and they have the same struggle and don't understand what the Bible has to say and teach about that. So we fall into sin and we're overcome by our sin and our guilt and we may believe we really never got saved. By the way, you become frustrated with your constantly falling into sin. This is a big one. Some Christians are so, listen, some, listen to me carefully. Some genuinely saved people are so bound by certain sins that they can't get free from. And you can imagine how the devil uses that to say you're not saved. I mean, look at you. How could you do that? How could you keep on doing that? You may try and try and try to overcome, only to be overcome with your sinning habits. And now you find yourself drifting further and further away from the Lord. You find yourself not reading your Bible. You're doing it less and less. You no longer spend time fellowshipping with the Lord. And because of your being overcome by your sin, your prayer life becomes nearly non-existent, too non-existent. And though you used to be faithful in church, now you hardly ever darken the doors. Happens all the time. These are reasons why a person doubts their salvation. They're legitimate, real reasons. But that comes to the next point that's so important. Then how can you know with certainty? How can you know with certainty you're genuinely saved and will never lose your salvation? How can you know that with certainty? I mean, I tell you something. I want to know that. (laughs) The Lord says... You appear before me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do that? Boy, I've spent 40 years preaching longer. And he says, I don't know you, Bill. I don't, boy, that's scary. That's frightening. So let's nail this down. How can you know with certainty you are genuinely saved and will never lose your salvation? By the way, I'm not trying to give anybody a false hope here. Please understand that. Trying to be so careful with this. Number one, number one, though still sinful, you keep on trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you. Think it through. Weigh it out. Though still sinful, and sometimes bad, really sinful, you keep on trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you. In other words, you acknowledge to God that you are not trusting your own efforts to be good or to do some good deeds to save you. Listen to this. Listen carefully. You acknowledge to God that you're not trusting your belonging to any church or your confirmation or your baptism. 
You're not in any way trusting Mary, the mother of God, the mother of Jesus, to save you and get you in, or any other sacrament that you might mention or the church has mentioned. I've shared you with you in the past, as I was going through this journey in my long life, that there were times I doubted my salvation. I thought, what do I do about it? Well, I chose to get on my knees, and I'd say a prayer like this. I'd say, God, the devil's right. With all my heart, I want you to know, he's right. If this depends on me at all to be justified or reconciled and go to heaven, I'm on my way to hell. I want you to know, he's right. If this depends on me at all, I'm going to hell. But with all my heart, I believe, Jesus, it depends on you and what you did for me on that cross. You bore all my sin. You bore all my judgment. You're the one who intercedes for me. And I am trusting you and you alone to save me. Even though I still struggle with sin, I am trusting you and you alone to save me. And guess what? The sulfur leaves the room. There's no more grounds to get me to doubt my salvation. Because why? I'm trusting Jesus Christ. And that's what I mean. Though still sinful, you keep on trusting Jesus and Him alone to save you. That's an evidence that you're genuinely saved. Number two. You pass the test that verifies you are genuinely saved. You pass the test that verifies you are genuinely saved. 2 Corinthians 13.5 and Colossians 1.27. We looked at 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourself, Paul says, to see if you're in the faith. So you're supposed to do that. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Can you say that? Can you say, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is in me, unless indeed you fail the test. In Colossians 1.27, you can hardly miss it if you've been around here. It's always on the wall behind me. What's it say? Say it all together. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our theme around here, by the way, if you didn't know it. It's our theme as a ver- uh, of the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, the next part of that, be in your outline, you have God the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells you. You have God the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells you. Let me ask you a question. We'll get to that, fill that in a minute. Is there any evidence in this universe, on this planet, that God exists and created the universe this planet? Yes or no? Heinz, that's no good. Say it again. Do you really believe there's some evidence, some evidence, on this, in this universe and on this planet that God exists and created it. Yes or no? Absolutely. Dear ones, you cannot have the Holy Spirit and have no evidence that He's in you. We'll see that in a minute. You have to have God the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells you. A genuinely saved person has God the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Romans 8 verses 9 and 10. If you are not in the flesh, or you are not in the flesh, I'm sorry, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Why? Because he said you've confessed with your mouth and you were made righteous. God imparted to you his Son's life and his Son's righteousness. You have eternal life. Listen, this settles it for me. It isn't a matter at all about church. It isn't a matter about what you believe or disbelieve with regard to your philosophy of life. It isn't what you've done or have not done. It's this, do you have God the Holy Spirit in you? Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. It's that simple. Well, that brings us to the next part, though. Well, Romans 8.16, let me go through my scripture. Romans 8.16. And by the way, this is the issue. This and only this answers and settles whether or not a person is genuinely saved, going to heaven or going to hell. Whether they're genuinely born again or lost a saint or an aid as somebody said romans eight sixteen, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of god the holy spirit testifies to your spirit that you're a child of god we'll talk about that a little bit later on galatians 4 6 because you are sons god has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father that's aramaic and, and greek papa papa so you pass the test that verifies you are genuinely saved. Number C in your outline. Here we go. This will help. This will help. You have the clear evidence God the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's why I asked you the question about this universe and this planet. Can God exist and be sovereign and the creator and not be any evidence whatsoever in our world? Nonsense. The fool has said in his heart, 
there is no God. And you look at Romans 1 to confirm why that's true. You have the clear evidence God the Holy Spirit indwells you. What evidence? Well, you don't have these five points, so hopefully you'll write down the verses. You may want to write down the evidence or get the CD. I ran out of space on your outline. I'm going to give you five. There's more. I'm going to give you five. You can't have the Holy Spirit and not have these evidences. Number one, evidence number one, you confess that Jesus is the Son of God. No issue with you. No issue with the same person. You confess that Jesus is the Son of God. First John 4.15, if you're taking notes. First John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, listen to this, God abides in him and he in God. Isn't that a good verse? God abides in the person who confesses. Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. We have in the back there, Mark Miller. Where's Shane? Is he not? Shane is here. So, on Wednesday night, you decide you're going to go out in the street where they have all these street people with Mark and Shane, and you're going to give up $5, okay? You're willing to give up $5 because you're going to prove this wrong. So you go up to all those street people and say, listen, if you will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, I'll give you $5. You think they can do it? Or will they get all garbled up? I can't say that. I bind you, they'd do it for five bucks. No problem at all. That is not what that means. So here's another verse to tie in with that. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. What does it say? Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. That's what our world says, doesn't it? But no one by the Spirit of God says that. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's he mean? He means the Holy Spirit has done such a work like that Philippian jailer. That you understand the law of God has done its work in your heart and life and you are a poor lost sinner, one heartbeat from eternal damnation in hell. And you believe that that's where you're going to end up. But oh, you hear the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for you, bore all your sin, bore all your judgment. And God says, now I can completely forgive you, reconcile you back to myself, and you have to understand that he is the son of God. He is fully God, fully man. He did that for you. And you say, Jesus is the Lord, I believe it. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Something happened in your heart. That's the Holy Spirit doing the work. So if you confess Jesus is the son of God, that's a sign, a confirming sign that evidence that God the Holy Spirit dwells in. Number two, you talk or pray to God as your loving heavenly father, not as a ritual. The world is filled full of religious people who talk to God as a ritual. That's why we don't all stand together and say the Lord's Prayer. Nothing wrong with that, but it tends to be a ritual when you do it over and over again. No, I talk to the Lord, my Heavenly Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ because of a relationship. And by the way, that's what he means there. Let me share a couple of scriptures there. Galatians 4, 6. If you want that, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. That's daddy, Aramaic. Daddy, Papa. And father is the pater, is the Greek. Same thing. So is that true? Do you find that you talk with the Lord in a relationship like that in your prayer life? Number three. Clear evidences that God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Number three, because God's love has been poured out upon you, you do love God, though imperfectly, you do love God and others. Romans 5, 5, because God's love has been poured out upon you, you do love God and others. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint. That's absolute assurance. That's what hope is. Does not disappoint. Because why? The love of God has been poured out upon you. It's been showered upon you within your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. First John four nineteen through 21 John writes, we love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. That's why. I've never seen him. I've never touched him, felt him. But I love because he first loved me. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And I love you. You're, you're the body of Christ here. And I love you and you love me. We love one another because of that. Though imperfect we be. Though sinful we be. Now I appreciate Hans. He said, Bill, I know that you're going to be talking about the subject. Uh, I have a, uh, a page I'm going to send you uh, and your, to your email by R.C. Sproul. Thank you, Hans, for that. And he was asked the question, why do people doubt their salvation? What can they do about that? Or their assurance? And here's what he said. I asked them, this R.C. Sproul, do you love the biblical Jesus at all? 
Do you love him at all? Do you have any affection in your heart for the Christ of the New Testament? If they say yes to that, then I can say, okay, how can you possibly have any affection for Jesus unless you are born of the Holy Spirit? I know that I couldn't love Jesus unless I were reborn, and I couldn't be reborn unless God has sovereignly chosen to give me the gift of regeneration, end of quote. Good answer, isn't it? You know, I'm troubled about my love. We're going to talk about leaving your first love. My first love left me. Went to Morocco, and, well, she'll be back. Absence makes the heart grow fonder and fonder. But I'm troubled about my imperfect love for Jesus, aren't you? I mean, troubled about your own? That shouldn't trouble you if you're not saved. You should care less. But there's something in you that says, I do love him. Though so imperfectly, I do love him, and I want to love him more, and I want to grow in that love. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit. Here's one I really like. Boy, this is one that really should settle up for a lot of you here. Number four, you readily identify with a wretched man struggle of Romans 7, 18 through 25. Let me say it again. You readily identify with, and I put in quotes, a wretched man struggle of Romans 7, 18 through 25. Let me read that portion. Paul says, "For I, by the way, here is the most disciplined religious man you're ever going to find. This guy had it all together, more than anybody in this room, and I'm totally convinced of that. And yet he gives this testimony. Listen to it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Boy, you're not going to hear an unsaved person say that. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, no unsaved person says the good that I want. I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But, wait a minute. If I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Do you think sin bothers the unsaved person? you think they're so concerned that they're not pleasing God? I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully, listen, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Go find an unsaved people that can, person that can say that. They joyfully concur by doing whatever they desire to do. They don't concur that joy with joy to the law of God. They have nothing to do with the law of God. So where do you stand on that issue? But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says, wretched man that I am. Do you think that's what the unsaved person says? <laughs> Not a chance. Oh, they're frustrated with life, how miserable it can be, and their marriage isn't what it should be, and their kids aren't doing what they should do, and the job could be better, and they ought to get rid of them, their employer and all that stuff. No, they go through all that, sure, maybe their health, but they never say, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Boy, I'll tell you what, that settles it for me. I understand this battle. It says, you know why, Bill, you understand it? Because the God, the Holy Spirit's in you, and that's why you have that battle. And you love the law of God, even though you often fail to do it. Number five. Number five. You acknowledge the Bible is God's written revelation to you and that it speaks to your heart. You're not out there saying, nah, I don't believe this is the Bible. I don't believe it's God's word. I believe it's written by man. It's full of errors. I don't believe any of it. That's not you if you're redeemed. You're saying, no, I believe this is God's precious love letter to me. It speaks to my heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired. as God breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I think of Jesus' words in John 8, 31, 32. He said, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word... Then you are truly disciples of mine. And what happens? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. God's written word convicts, it comforts, it exhorts, corrects, it reproves, it instructs, it guides, it produces spiritual growth, it causes one to love and worship God, and much more. And the generally say a person acknowledges the Bible as God's written revelation to him or her, and that it speaks to your heart. If that's not the case, then you need to ask, am I really genuinely saved? So dear ones, this morning, gaining a biblical understanding of your salvation, if you're here this morning and you've heard this, and maybe you just won't, I'll be glad this oversight can get out of here and get me a cup of coffee and a good meal. There might be something wrong with your salvation. You may not have it. You may be dependent on being, oh, I'm okay, look at the rest of the world, I'm about like them or better. Or, hey, I have my philosophy, I have my beliefs, okay. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what God says, is it? 
If you're here, though, and you say, man, I feel under conviction. You talked about the Holy Spirit convicting of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I am a sinner. I have no righteousness before God, and there's a judgment to come, and I don't want that. Then the issue is next, will you receive? Will you believe and receive that gospel? Will you say it's Jesus Christ and Him alone? Nobody else, no other thing. Jesus and Him alone that will save me, and I want to be saved. Then listen, God will infuse in you right now the life of His Son and His righteousness, and much more. You'll be justified in a split second, just like that. You'll be born into God's family. But yes, to some extent, say, okay, where are you in this? Is that what you want? Is that what you want? And opening up your heart to Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10. But maybe you're here and you're saved, but you're struggling with doubts. Maybe it's because you're caught in sin. Maybe it's because of all these other things I mentioned there, the four other things. And listen, I hope that somehow this will help you overcome those doubts and rest that you're trusting in Him and him alone to be your savior and say lord i just want to grow i do have a love it's so imperfect but i do have a love for you i've never seen you but i know i belong to you i do love you i want to grow in that love and would you help me and that's what this church is here for we're imperfect as well as a church we're here to help people grow and then thirdly maybe you're here and probably many of you are and you say i've got that settled i've walked with god for years i know the scriptures i know i'm still a sinner but i'm simply trusting him and growing in this grace and knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ then go out of here praising him and worshiping him just be filled full of praise and say lord why me why why would you choose me i have no answer that's that mystery isn't it and why would you totally completely wonderfully forgive me of all my sins and why don't you give up on me But you never do. And you just keep helping me grow more and more in your grace and knowledge. And may I be to your praise and glory. Let's pray together and then we're going to sing a closing song. And I want to read it to you before we sing it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt though we are sinners and we still keep on sinning and we're so imperfect that we are wonderfully, genuinely saved. That we are totally forgiven that you are our Heavenly Father that though we are unworthy, we are your children, and you want us to grow in that relationship and your grace and knowledge and bear much fruit, and one day in a split moment, we're going to be taken into your presence. And there we will live and reign with you and see you. Lord Jesus, we're going to see you. Think about this eclipse, and you don't dare even then look in the sun. Wow, you don't dare look upon the face of the glorified Lord, but then we're going to be able to do it. What a great salvation. But Father... Only you know, with the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in the Holy Spirit, who of us here are genuinely saved and who is not. Would you speak to that person's heart? Father, I can't save anybody, but I've shared how one gets saved. Holy Spirit, would you do that work of bringing them to genuine saving faith? And Father, if they do get saved, let them be obedient. Let them be baptized. You said, follow the Lord in the waters of baptism if you are truly a believer of mine. Let them do that, I pray. Move in their heart to do that, to confirm their salvation. And Father, for those who are doubting, it's understandable. Would you help them to overcome that doubt and begin the joyful resting, resting in Jesus, the joy of what thou art. Just help them to rest in the salvation that you alone provide for them. In Jesus' name, amen.